Hello and welcome to this episode of Science in a Cup. I'm Alex Papanikola from the Hawkesbury Institute and with me today is Dr. David Coyle from the CREF. Did I say that correctly? You sure did. It's uh, SREF, Southern Regional Extension Forestry. And uh, I work for the only region-wide extension group in the southern, uh, in North America, actually. So we're a regional forest extension group. The word you want to elaborate on is health. Is that right? Yeah, well, yeah, forest health is, a, is an interesting word, right? And, I, and it's one of those things where it's, it's thrown around a lot, but it means something completely different depending on who you're talking to and what their perspective is. So if you're talking to someone who owns a thousand acres of pine, a large, large chunk of pine, and their, their job is to grow that pine for money, be it timber, pulpwood, you know, to them, almost every pine tree has a dollar sign on it. So a healthy forest in their case means all their trees are alive and they're maximizing their economic output, which is completely fine. That's their perspective on it. And in that case, we work a lot with them to, you know, make sure they're managing their stands to maximize their growth and maximize their tree survival. Uh, but you also have people who just own trees or woods. It might be a much smaller plot, one acre, five acres, 10 acres. Uh, some of these people own them just to have a place of nature to go to. They are not nearly as concerned if, if a tree dies, because to them that means there's going to be some new birds coming in, right? Woodpeckers are going to come to that thing and try to get all the insects out of there, and eventually it's going to fall down and start decomposing, and some neat mushrooms are going to grow on there, so they look at it maybe as just a place of have some peace and quiet, take a walk, look at some nature. So to them, a tree or even two, you know, a few trees dying is not necessarily that big a deal. You've also got folks who have land, you know, mostly just to hunt animals, deer, turkeys, quail. There's all sorts of stuff we hunt down here in the southeast and everywhere else. And to them, if a tree dies, it kind of matters what kind of tree it is, right? They, they want to maximize their, uh, the commonness of certain species of tree. Keep the oaks because a lot of animals like to eat acorns, that type of thing. And there's some tree species that maybe aren't as desirable from a wildlife perspective. So it really depends on what, you know, what position are you coming from? What does forest health mean? And I think we, I work very hard to let people know that forest health is not a one, one definition word. It's completely dependent on that person and their specific chunk of land. What do they want to do with it? So all this now makes me wonder... What is a forest for you? Ooh, a forest. That's, that's another one that is a different definition to, to anybody, you know. Um, forest, to me, is a chunk, of, a chunk of trees in the natural environment with it. Now, is there a size definition? Probably, you know, there probably is for me. It's probably, you know, in the 10-acre range or so. That's, what, three and a half hectares or so. Um, there's also the term woods, right? What, do, what is the difference between woods and what's the difference between forests? I don't know that there is a definition. I think woods, woods might encompass some of those smaller chunks of land. Someone who has maybe one hectare or, or, or two acres or something, that can be considered woods. I don't know that that's really a forest per se, but it's a very subjective definition. You really put me on the spot there with that one. But, um, you know, most people that aren't in production forestry. Most people that own land for something other than purely timber sales generally say the word woods, 
we own some woods or we went to the woods or, you know, there's some woods over there. Generally, you'll hear people in the, uh, in the business of trees, they will refer to it as a forest because those chunks of land are much larger. Those chunks of timber are much larger. So it's a tricky one and it, it is very context dependent. So. so is it a closed system, however? I mean, where do you draw the line of where the forest starts or ends? Is it a group of trees that just says that this area is a forest and then there is, for example, a, a pasture or, or, or a group of settlements, a house, and then another forest and that's a second forest? Or do you define the whole system based on the connectivity of the organism that inhabit that forest? I guess the question is, does the trees make the forest or is it the function of the organisms that live in that forest define that landscape, that forest? And if it is the function, what is exactly the function of a forest? Well, I think a forest has multiple functions, right? There's the, um, a lot of the things we look at now are the environmental functions of a forest or of a group of trees, right? They clean the air, they filter the water, they provide a sanctuary for all sorts of different uh, wildlife species, you know, with and without backbones. Um, they provide cooling, especially in some of those urban suburban areas, trees are extremely important. And there's been a, a lot of research showing that where there are trees, it's much cooler, which is as you would sort of expect. Uh, I think the function of, of these wooded areas is still gaining traction in the science community. Well, maybe not in the science community. I think we as scientists know how important forests or trees or woods, whatever you want to call them, we understand how important they are. We have to work now to get non-scientist folks to, to sort of grasp that concept and understand how important they are as well. Uh, and you're right that there, you know, even though the trees may stop, that landscape keeps going. And now in some cases, that provides sort of a um, sort of a stopping point for certain organisms, right? If, if you have trees right next to a large hayfield, there are some organ some things in that forest system or in that wood system that aren't going to go across that hayfield at all. There's others that are going to fly or walk or run right across it and not think anything of it. So I think it really um, it it gets down to a species specific thing. You know, are you talking about the deer in that? In that chunk of woods, are you talking about the birds? Birds ranges, as we know, are huge, right? So they, you know, if it's a, a field there, they'll just keep on going. But there's definitely a lot of insects that that may stop right there in those in that woods patch. And we've seen quite a bit of research that shows, you know, once that chunk of woods or those patch of trees or that forest ends, you're not gonna catch insects in that open area. They just don't go out there for whatever, you know, physical, biological reason they stay in the woods. So while it is an open system, it kind of depends on what organism you're talking about as to whether or not it, it's open from their perspective or not. Tell me about patches. Can you still have a functional forest ecosystem if it is basically just patches of wood? Boy, um, that's a question we don't know. We don't know what size of a patch of woods is required for certain things, right? So let's take uh, air quality. We know that every tree improves air quality, right? Because it's taking in that CO2 and it's kicking out oxygen. So we know every tree is good. 
but we don't know at what size do you need a patch of woods to actually influence the surrounding area? And if so, you know, what's the donut of influence around that patch of woods based on the size of the patch of trees? I don't think we know that yet. We just simply know that the studies that have been done have been on fairly large scale, uh, large scales to my knowledge. Uh, same thing for water quality. A lot of times those studies are done on the watershed uh, landscape scale, which is huge, right? And it's usually wooded and and that's a function of just being able to measure the water coming off the watershed. So it would be really tough to do that in a suburban environment because you've got so many other things washing into, you know, the, the rivers and all that. You've got the, all these other sort of urban contaminants. So uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to measure for sure. I think, you know, we're getting that, we're getting to the point where we know it's, we know it's, trees are a good thing and these patches of woods and forests is a good thing but it's it's also difficult to actually say how good they are on small scales you know we can say how good they are on large scales but when it gets right down to it you know in my neighborhood we've got maybe five acres of woods and it sort of separates kind of one one street from the other and that's it we're surrounded by farms so we're just sort of this little neighborhood plopped out in the middle of the country with basically two streets in a u-shape and there's woods in between them what's the impact of that woods i don't know you know i can tell you it's completely covered in invasive plants um i can also tell you that when it rains there is uh there's very little vegetation on there because i see the water and the just washing the topsoil down into the gully i also know that our neighborhood is quite new you know, in this part, and it's only been there a couple of years, so I don't know how much damage was done from all the construction around the woods. You know, I mean, the woods were cleared to make this neighborhood, and they left that little strip in the middle there because there's a creek, but, you know, it's tough to know without having been there before. It's tough to know what the original part of woods looked like. You know, I can guess based on what's left, but what I don't know is how much, you know, ecological damage was done creating that whole neighborhood. And without that, it's really tough to put any numbers on, you know, what good is the remaining woods? I can tell you it's, it's good from our perspective. We like having it. It, it. it shades the house. We don't have to see the neighbors. Provides a, you know, place for the kids to play. We have all sorts of animals and birds and all that stuff because of that chunk of woods. It's, it's big enough for that. But as far as what is it doing, um, you know, on a larger scale, boy, it's tough to tell. And it'd be really tough to measure, too. Okay. Let's say if you were charged with implementing a system of forest care, a US-wide forest health care, where would you start? Oh man, you're getting me. So let's see, where would you start? I think you would, honestly, I would start with the invasive species because those I think are our, I think they're our number one threat to forests in the US and North America worldwide, honestly. Invasive species are kind of the, the worst thing we're dealing with right now. You know, in a perfect world, we would stop all of them from coming in. We would have better, uh, a better protocol at our ports of entry. We'd be able to check more containers that come in and stop a lot of these things, but that's just frankly not going to happen. There's not enough people power to do that. There's too much volume coming in to adequately check all of it. And that's why they check maybe you know, a percent or a percent and a half of everything that comes in actually gets checked. And even in that little percentage, we find stuff all the time. You know, a lot of the stuff does not get, doesn't get um, established. Um, 
you know, for every every whole handful of things, you get one emerald ash borer, but it only takes one to completely devastate forests, right? I mean, that one's wiping out an entire genus of trees across northern or eastern North America. So we constantly find these invasive species coming in and some of them become a big deal, some of them do not. But if I had to start with any type of large, broad prescription, that would have to be the one thing. You know, in a perfect world, you'd stop them from coming in. Knowing that that can't happen, I would love to see us ramp up our efforts on monitoring and early detection because if you find something early enough, there is still a chance you can eradicate it. But once it's sort of crossed over that peak of arriving, and then once it gets established, there's not a lot you can do about it except just try to, you know, band-aid the damage at that point. What is it about invasive species that allows them to cause so much damage? Well, they have um, several characteristics. You know, anything that's not from a particular area, maybe it's the United States or North America, there's several terms for it. It could be an invasive species, it could be an alien species, an exotic species, or a non-native species. Alien, exotic, and non-native all mean the same thing. It means it is not from here. Invasive species, think of that as a small proportion of all the exotic, alien, or non-native species that get in. A small proportion becomes invasive, and that means they possess a certain amount of characteristics that allows their populations to grow rapidly and cause this widespread havoc that we see with things like the emerald ash borer. They generally have a very wide host range and or they have few if any natural enemies in the area or they're in the case of plants they may be very tolerant to a wide range of growing conditions. So we have a certain a grass in this southeast called kogon grass Imperata cylindrica and it grows equally well in sun or shade uh, wetness or drought with or without competition and it can survive in these big thick rhizomes for multiple years just sitting there dormant waiting for the right time to grow it's it's almost impossible to eradicate it at this point to eradicate a patch takes two to three years of intensive treatment and it's it's over just the whole southern gulf coast at this point so we're beyond that but um, you look at a beetle like the emerald ash borer that came in that only attacks one genus of trees, but uh, it finds pretty much every ash tree in an area. There aren't really any natural enemies. Its life history is such that it develops inside the bark of a tree. So unless something is lucky enough to catch an adult, once it lays the eggs, those larvae are living their entire life cycle inside a tree protected by the bark. So, you know, they, they have this ability to just kind of go undetected and they kill, the, they kill their host tree very quickly. You know, within a year or two, the host is dead and the, the beetles have come out and they have moved on and their populations increase so quickly. There's just no natural enemy here that is, is going to keep up with that. You know, there's always a lag time between a, a host population increase and a predator population increase. And that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem and a more, you know, logistic side is we as scientists don't know what the next non-native species is going to be that becomes invasive. You know, we've got some people that are sort of looking, but, you know, in its native range of China, the emerald ash borer does very little damage. It's a secondary pest that when people started looking in the literature, there was very little written about it because it's just another one of the little beetles that attacks a dead or a dying tree, and people didn't really give it a whole lot of thought. 
Well, it comes to a new land and all of a sudden it's this amazing invasive pest that kills live trees like they're going out of style. So we kind of got into an unprecedented situation where we as scientists had to learn what we were dealing with while it was already decimating the ash trees of North America. And, um, you know, we put a lot of effort into EAB and we learned a lot in the first, you know, 10 or 12 years, enough to where now we can try to, we have some control methods, but the problem is in 10 or 12 years, it went from being discovered in one county in Michigan to covering the, almost the entire eastern half of the continent. So we're so far behind, there's just not a lot, you know, we can do at this point, except try to mitigate the damage and, and sort of save what's left. So it makes it hard. And I tell you, the hardest part is just not knowing what's next. You know, we have no idea what's next. If we had a 10 year head start knowing that, hey, in 20, 2027, we were gonna get some beetle from Vietnam that wipes out all the pines. Well, you know, we'd start putting all our efforts toward that right now and we'd be ready when it got here, but that's just not how it works. And what about the reverse? Do you have natives in the United States that become invasive in other countries? Yeah, one of our uh, one of our somewhat common bark beetles called the red turpentine beetle, Dendrochthonus valens, is a a secondary root feeding insect. Uh, it attacks the lower stem of pines in, in more of the northern part of our country. It's not really considered a pest. Sometimes it's a pest in uh, Christmas tree plantations and some of that, but it got over to China. I forget how, but it's in China, and it's it's an an invasive pest in China. It's killing all sorts of trees, you know. And, and we nobody saw that coming because over here it doesn't it doesn't go through outbreak phases. It's sort of you know always kind of there. You can catch them, but usually don't find too many. But over there it just went crazy. You know, the only silver lining going that way is we had already done a lot of research. You know, American researchers have done a lot of research on the red turpentine beetle, mostly in an ecological setting. So there was, you know, when it went to China, they could contact us and we did have some information to give them. Um, and that differs from something like EAB, where over there it just wasn't even a concern. You know, at least over here, the red turpentine beetle, you know, had a little economic impact in some situations. So it had gotten a little bit of research done on it, but uh, that's a big one. And then on the agricultural side, we have a, the European corn borer is, uh, is all over America. And then also, I believe it got back into different parts of Europe and it's really wreaking havoc on some of the corn over in the, uh, Croatia area and some of that that part of uh, of Europe. So, although it is it's much rarer for things to come from America to other places, um, I suspect because we import so much as a country, you know, we import so many different things. Uh, I don't think we export nearly as much to some of these countries as we import. So, that's a that's a suspicion on why it's uh, such a one way street. But you know, I'm not sure, and I know. Folks have done some research on that to try to figure out why there are so many invasives coming into and establishing in America versus going to Europe or going to Asia or going to Australia and establishing there. It's a very, very lopsided uh, trade, if you will. So could it be a difference in the levels of biodiversity? That's a neat thought. I hadn't thought about that, but it very well could be. Yeah, we've those areas you mentioned have been involved in management for so long and uh you know, um, domesticizing so many different crops and so many different areas. And, and even in forestry, it's not that the woods are completely domesticated, but we, we have gone through and, you know, completely logged them and clear cut them, or we've high graded, taken out all the best 
trees, the best looking trees. And, you know, we have this issue in some of the hardwood regions where all the best, best trees were taken out, you know, a hundred years ago and we're left with what's left. Now there's still a lot of good trees there, but it's not the best. And you're sort of left with the progeny of the second best, so to speak. Right. So you've got these large areas that are completely populated with second best genetics, I guess, for lack of a better word. That's a good, that's a very good thought. And I guess I hadn't thought of that, but it makes perfect sense that that would be at least a contributing factor as to why stuff is so easy to seemingly easy to establish over here. Could this management practices have led to a loss of natural enemies and therefore affect how well the country can protect itself from invasive species? So what, what can actually happen to these biodiverse rich countries, such as China, if they kept on maintaining a productivity focus rather than balance it, for example, with a biodiversity protection? Yeah, I think that's probably likely, in, you know, in my opinion, I think that's likely. And we, we have seen that over here with the southern pine beetle. Yeah, historically, it was very much limited to the southern United States, uh, Virginia and south and some of the southern pine. But in the last few years, it's outbreaks have crept all the way up into New York and into, I believe, New Jersey and Massachusetts with all these different pines. Now, there's some historical uh, evidence that it has been there before, but there was a lot of debate on is this a, a range expansion or simply things have changed enough now where it's going back to where it once was. And, you know, I think a part of that is what we're seeing with the global climate. Things are definitely changing. You know, they're getting a little bit warmer, but you're getting a lot more climate uh, or weather instability, as I like to call it, right? You might have two or three or four or more years of extremely warm temperatures. And that's kind of the time it takes for the, some of these insect populations to really ramp up and really get going and really start moving. And yeah, it might come, you know, you might come and have a, a hard freeze on year five or year six, but at that point, a lot of damage has been done. You know, and that's what we see up north already with Southern pine beetle. In, you know, our, uh, our agricultural practices here in the U.S., it's no telling how many species we've lost because of uh, sort of how people have managed things. Um, part of that is just people not knowing. Part of that is, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the way the government goes. Um, different uh, monies get put towards different uh, agencies with different uh, focus, you know, a different focus. So, it's tough to tell what's going to happen in the uh, in the future, but I do think this the way we've been doing business, the cost of doing business, is probably a lot of species we don't even know. You know, some of these really small parasitoids, we don't even know that they're there because they're little teeny tiny wasps that, frankly, are a big pain to work with. They're a pain to key out and figure out what they are. Um, there's uh, there's not a lot of money for pure taxonomy anymore, so we don't even know what they are. And so we're at that point now where unfortunately, I think we have a lot of emphasis on science, but it's all very, very applied. How can this be economically important? And I think a lot of times people and funding agencies and, and politicians and all that, they tend to forget that, forget or don't know, who knows what it is, right? But that the, the backbone of all this applied work is a, is a good knowledge of pure science and the basic science and what is out there and what it does and how it relates to all these other things. So we're, we're definitely losing that. And, you know, I think right now we're in a, a global perfect storm of seeing some of these pests just go off and go haywire and 
we're definitely in an area an area of unprecedented pest impacts. So would our imaginary US agency, Forest Care, invest in basic fundamental research as well? I think you have to. If this is my agency, I can do whatever I want, right? So Absolutely. I, yeah. No, we there has to be a mix. I think there has to be a mix of figuring out what is there and, and some of this we lose so much natural history information in this day and age, it seems like. Um, I think that's a very critical part of how things work and knowing how they work. And to fix something, first you got to know how it works. And I think without that, we're just, you know, we're, I think in some cases we're looking at the wrong questions. We're answering the wrong questions. We're asking the wrong questions. But that's because we don't have that basic knowledge. You know, we have to, you know, I think there's very good, a good case to be made for knowing what our native Uprestids, our native beetles that are very similar to emerald ash borer. If we knew as much about them before EAB got here as we know now, might be a different situation. You know, once EAB gets here, all of a sudden, holy cow, let's study everything with Uprestidae. Or once the Cyrex wood wasp got here, we need to learn all about our native cirrhosids. Well, if we would have known that before, it would have put us, you know, several years ahead in the game as far as how we manage a new one coming in because we already could say, okay, well, it's a sericid like species X, species Y, and species Z. And in those cases, here's the biocontrol options that are out there. Here's the management we know that probably works based on the life history of these other ones. We would have had that. And, uh, you know, we just, we just didn't. So in my, uh, what was it, forecare, forest care, um, we, would, we would definitely have a natural history division to, uh, to support some of that, that natural history stuff. It's so important and it's, it's unfortunate to see that it doesn't get emphasized as much as I feel that it probably should. And I guess that's where scientists come in and science communication, like science in a cup. So thank you, David, and thank you to you, the listeners. Uh, if you like this show, which you can listen on iTunes, please leave a rating and see you next time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alexi. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.